So when I was assigned this passage, I read it for the first time, and I thought to myself, I am the last person on earth who should be preaching this message. This message is about intense suffering and grief. It's about debilitating lament. I mean, who am I to even touch this passage? I mean, I've had, I've had my share of difficulties, just like everyone in here, but nothing like what's being described here in this passage. So I just thought, <laughs> you know, this is not for me. I've been described as some as the most optimistic person they've ever met. A cup half full, rose-colored glasses, silver lining behind every cloud type of guy, right? This is not for me to preach this psalm. Um, and then it was just about two weeks ago, as I was anxiously making my way down I-80 for the 11-hour journey to Kit Carson Peak in Colorado, where my friend Dan Wallach was last seen, um, that I couldn't help but just fearfully wonder if the experience of Psalm 6 was about to become far more near and far more intimate than I ever cared to hope for. So many of you know the outcome of that story. Many of you can imagine the difference there was for me in reading Psalm 6 alone in my office about three weeks ago, and then reading it again with Dan's father-in-law a few days ago, as we could do nothing but weep and embrace each other as the reality of Dan's death sunk in like this dark, just heavy cloud filling every corner of that cabin that we stood. Well, you know, little did I know on that drive to Colorado that the message of Psalm 6 would, would begun, begin to feel uncomfortably personal to me and at the same time tremendously hopeful and comforting for my stunned and grieving heart. I lost one of my closest friends and one of the most godly examples of a selfless man I've ever known to a mountain climbing accident. And the days leading up to finding his body were just excruciating and they were surreal. I mean, we searched everywhere on that mountain. We were just hoping and praying that everything with everything in us, that it would, this would all just be part of some inspiring story of, of resilience and rescue that we'd talk about later on over the dinner table. The loss has been found. The scare is over. Right? The story with a happy ending. And, but Dan's story didn't end that way. And there I was, left facing that reality and the reality of a, an entire family devastated by the abrupt end to a life that just seemed to be on the cusp of something greater and grander. But Dan's, I know this isn't just about my story. It's not even about the Wallach's story. It's not a story isolated to a few unlucky individuals out there. But this is the reality that each and every one of us here live in to some degree at different times in our lives. Listen, um, some in this room have suffered loss from miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage, as if one's not enough. 
Some have experienced the intense pain of a failed or dysfunctional marriage, a chronic illness, years of infertility, debilitating anxiety and depression, or perpetual worry over a rebellious teenage son or daughter. You've faced family conflict, the horrors of military warfare, the sting of betrayal by a friend, the dissolving of a business that you poured your heart and soul into, the death of a loved one, or the guilt and repercussions of sin in your own life. Am I speaking to anybody here? (laughs) Yeah. Modern American Christianity teaches us that we're to be in, right, out, right, up, right, down, right, happy all the time. And no wonder so many of the Psalms are just skipped right over. Because the reality is that so much of life is painful. And we need a God who's big enough to meet us in every part of life. And the Psalms are such a doorway into a God who both rejoices with those who rejoice and he weeps with those who weep. So in Psalm 6, we're given not only a window into David's life on one such occasion of intense grief and difficulty, but we're also shown the redemptive way of entering into our own pain and allowing God to do the same. So in this Psalm, we see that David, one, he openly admits his desperate condition before God. He anchors his cry in God's covenant character, and he finds comfort and confidence in God hearing his cry. So let's start by reading the very first phrase of this psalm. Oh Lord, let's just stop right there. David doesn't first turn to his friends. He doesn't first turn to his counselors, but he addresses the Lord. So my question for you is, where do you turn in a moment of trial? Are you coming to God? Are you turning to him with the deepest, most pressing questions? Or is your default to find absolution or justification in other places? Where's the first place that you turn to complain? Is it your spouse? Is it a Facebook post that will garnish some sympathy? None of these are intrinsically wrong, but God wants us to come to him, not as just some afterthought, but as our first and most treasured refuge. So David comes before God in his pain. And what he brings to God is raw. David openly admits his desperate condition before God. Let's read the rest of verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, for I'm languishing. When you read that, do you sense some sort of apprehension in David coming to God? I mean, it definitely could be because David has sinned and he's begging God for his mercy. But I also can't help wonder if, if David faces this sense of, sense of trepidation, right, in voicing his dire state to God. Have you ever been in a place like this with a friend? Your heart is so deeply troubled, and it feels like relief will only come when you can just let off some steam, you can vent in full disclosure and honesty, and yet there's this fear inside of you about how the other person is going to respond. Is this really a safe place to voice my complaint? Will I be rejected? 
Will I be dismissed? Will I just be humored? Or will I be scolded for, for getting myself into this? Will my pain be made light of? Will I be seen as weak or incompetent? I know I've been there. And this is the moment that David is in as well. Opening up in full disclosure is really vulnerable. It's scary. Will God be angry with me for telling him of my grief, for telling him of my sorrow, for complaining? Is God really interested in me when life is going wrong? All these questions, and yet David opens up in complete vulnerability, complete transparency before God. He doesn't come perfectly, but he comes. (laughs) And as we see David coming to God in such stark honesty, the question just rises up in us, could I do the same? Should I do the same? And I think the answer is a resounding yes. It's not only okay, but it's good, and it's necessary to bring your pain to God. And if it's not, then you better start ripping page after page after page of your Bible. Listen, if David had good reason to come to the Lord with his need, then we have even more. Later in the scriptures, we read the words of God coming through the prophet Isaiah, inviting us to come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. To come thirsty means that we we come lacking something essential to our being whole. It means we come incomplete and in need. And this is exactly why we can take our cue from David in openly admitting our condition before God. Without fronting, without pretending, without downplaying where we are. And so we see that David here is, he's in excruciating pain. We don't know the exact cause or the nature of it, but it's clear the sorrow that he's experiencing is reaching to the deepest places in his soul. Look at verse 2. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are trouble. David's in this place where he's experiencing pain in his whole being. He's discouraged. He's distressed. He's dismayed. It's easy for us to pinpoint the pain of a headache or a stomach ache, or a back ache. But what David's describing here is a whole person ache. There's no release. There's no escape. Verse 3, my soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? How long what? It doesn't even matter. He can't even finish his sentence. When I read this, what comes to my mind is a moment from my teenage years. I was sitting at the edge of my 18-year-old sister's bed as she shook underneath the covers. She was trembling, and she was crying, and she was barely able to raise her voice, but just kept repeating, please, God, please, God, please, God, make it stop. And I remember that so clearly My sister, she suffered from intense depression and debilitating anxiety that forced her to to temporarily drop out of college and quit her job, and it often kept her 
from even being able to leave the house for the next eight years. She could have stolen David's words right out of his mouth. How long, O Lord? And I think if you're honest here, and if I'm honest, there's a question in your soul, isn't there? Are you willing to bring that question to the Lord? So let's go on and look at David's petition. In verse 4, the first thing in his, out of his mouth is this, turn. By asking the Lord to turn, it seems that David doesn't feel like God sees him in his suffering, as if God's back were to him. And don't you think it's true that when we're hurting, more than anything, we want to be seen? Like, think about your kids, okay? When my little boy, John, when he tumbles down a step at home, what's the first thing he does, even before he cries? I'll tell you what he does. That's right. He scans the room. He scans the room looking for my eyes. He wants to know, did you see me, Poppy? Did you notice? Do you care? Is your face turned toward me? Do you see what David's asking? It's the very thing that you and I are asking. It's the very thing that you and I are searching for in our pain. It's the very thing every child searches for in their pain. We want to be seen. We want to be heard. We want to be noticed. And we want to know that we're not alone. So David cries out, God, turn. Can you see me? So now let's move on to the second point about why David can even voice his suffering to God like this. Continuing in verse 4, it says, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Now maybe this request to you seems fair. It seems normal. But I think the question still begs an answer. What right does David, a sinful broken man have to make such a bold request of God? What's the basis for his prayer? For God to turn back to him, to save his life, to deliver him. And the answer is found in the name that David addresses God with. You may have noticed that everywhere in this passage that you see the word Lord, it's all in capital letters. You ever wonder why that is? It's referring to the covenant-saving name of God. David calls out to God as Lord, as Yahweh, the one who's promised to keep the covenant that was made to his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So David doesn't plead his own goodness or his own worthiness to be answered, but he appeals to God, the covenant Lord and his steadfast love. The name that David calls upon indicates God's promise to all who will call on his name. That is the basis of his hope. Because of who you are, Lord, answer me. I know you're a God of great love who shows mercy to those who cry out in need. And so church, is that who you see God to be? Is that the basis and the confidence of your cry when you're in trouble? Or do you somehow think that you need to get your act together before you can come to him. 
Do you think you need to get right with God before you can pour out your complaint? See, it's in in those moments of despair that many will want to say to you, and maybe you'll want to say to yourself, just pull yourself together. Pick yourself up. Stop holding a pity party. Move on. Do better. Get with it. Come on, man. But we quickly learn that this motivational self-talk doesn't have the lasting power to really change you, to bring deep healing and comfort when you need it. But the counterintuitive way that Psalm 6 points us to is, the, is to appeal to God's good and merciful character. To say, Lord, I need your grace. You've promised to be merciful to those who call on your name. And that's what I'm banking on in my desperate state. Answer me not because of who I am, but because of who you are. Turn your face to me. So I'm reminding you this morning, just like I'm reminding myself, that this is your only hope. Because if we wait until we're all cleaned up to come to God, then we'll never come at all. Before reading what comes after verse 4, I want to ask you a question. So have you ever apprehensively or vaguely share with someone that you were having a tough week? As if to kind of test the waters, you know, to see how they would react, to see if it was safe to share or if they even really cared to know more. You ever done this? And then maybe to your surprise, that person stops what they're doing. They sit down with you. They look at you in the eyes They lean in intently and everything about their expression and their posture and their words just shows nothing but love and compassion. Before you know it, you find yourself telling them everything, right? You're disclosing the nitty-gritty details of your miserable week. But why did you do that? Because you felt confident of this person's heart towards you, that they were for you, that they genuinely cared for you and they cared about your story. And this is exactly what happens to David in these next few verses. Once David is confident of God's merciful character, he's free to confess the true depth of his sorrow and depression. So listen to how David's honesty intensifies here. Verse 5, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Man, he just lets loose. He just puts it all out there. But listen, like David, when you and I grasp just how merciful and just how compassionate this covenantal Father God is, then you too will experience the freedom in the same kind of raw self-disclosure before God. Without fear, without regret. Do you see that? So David finds himself in this space, having poured out the depths of his despair, having anchored his plea in the covenant, goodness, and promise of God. And it's at this point that David discovers the very thing that turns the tide of this oppressive wave. David finds comfort 
He finds confidence that God has heard his cry. Verse 8 says this, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Parents, do you have any of your children at nighttime when they have a nightmare and they lay in bed crying? Maybe no one else heard. Maybe all the other kids kept right on sleeping, but you heard. There could be a massive storm outside. You could be in the deepest part of your sleep cycle, and yet because you're their mommy, because you're their daddy, and because your ears are so attuned in love to the cry of your children, to the cry of their weeping, you could hear that sound, couldn't you? And then what happened? And you let them crawl into your lap. You didn't try and shut them up. You didn't try to scold them for their tears. No, you let them sob and sob until their tears were all dried up. And then they begin to tell you what was wrong and you begin to comfort them. And see, mommies and daddies made in the image of God can only be like this because God, our Heavenly Father, is like this, extending such grace and compassion towards his broken children. So church, listen. If you hear anything else, (laughs) listen to this. The Lord has heard the sound of your weeping. Maybe no one else does. Tony, my brother, and Judith. Katie and JD. The Lord has heard the sound of your weeping. He's not indifferent to it. Let's return to the beginning of verse 8 one more time. It says this. It says, Depart from me, all you workers of evil. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. Can you see that verse 8 is this turning point for David? There's this surge of confidence, even in the midst of this intense trial. So a question, why all of a sudden do the mocking voices lose their power? Why all of a sudden do the accusing thoughts lose their grip on David? It's because David knows with all of his heart that he's been heard, that he's been understood, that his prayer has been accepted. And so the psalm ends with these words, All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. And do you notice something about verses 8 and 9 compared to verse 10? There's different tenses. God has heard David's weeping. God has heard his plea. But verse 10 is talking about the future. My enemies shall be ashamed. 
They shall turn back and be put to shame. And this is so important. David's circumstances haven't changed. He's confident that one day all will be made right, and yet he remains surrounded, yet he remains hurting. So what makes the difference? He's been heard. He's not alone, and his suffering is not wasted. The same God who promised his forefathers to never leave nor forsake his people would be with him in this trial and would ultimately redeem it. Now this, all of this is really good news for David. And it sustains him in his suffering. But I think we would fall far short if we ended the message there saying, great. Now go, just be like David. Just be honest with God. Base your petitions on his good character. Find comfort in his presence. Amen. Go in peace. See, we know something that David didn't know when he wrote this psalm. If David had confidence in the goodness and the nearness of God, then we have all the more. David's confidence and his comfort he received in his suffering was in the covenant made by God. But we, on this side of the cross, have confidence in the covenant fulfilled by God through the sending of Jesus Christ into the world. And it's in the fulfilling of this covenant that we see the fullness of God's good, gracious, loving, empathetic, long-suffering heart on full display. When we step back and we see this panoramic view of the biblical story of redemption, it becomes crystal clear who David is pointing to. He's pointing to a God who doesn't keep his distance. Looking at all the miserable people on earth, rebuking them for not getting their act together, chiding them and mocking them in their pain. Rather, David points us to a God who in Christ enters the world, becomes a man who's subject to all the pain, all the heartache, all the betrayal and the misery of humanity. A God who in every sense of the word gets it. Listen, we all know that when we're going through a difficult time, one of the most healing things for us is to have a steady, compassionate presence of someone who gets it. They understand what we're going through, someone who can enter into our pain with us. And in Jesus, Hebrews 14, 15 says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted, including the temptation to despair, as we are yet without sin. The agony of David that we see in Psalm 6 is a shadow of the agony that God himself in Christ Jesus would suffer while on earth. If you're familiar with the life of Christ, then the words of Psalm 6 should actually sound pretty familiar to you. Jesus also wept, not flooding his bed with tears, but covering the garden soil with drops of blood from his angst. Jesus faced the onslaught of angry men's jeering and mocking, false accusations, physical brutality. Jesus saw the backside of God the Father. 
in a moment of fierce loneliness and rejection as God turned away from the sin of the world that was placed on Jesus. Hebrews says that he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Isaiah says he was a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. John says he was hated with no reason. Matthew says he was forsaken, not only by men, but by God the Father. There is one who understands. There is one who knows your suffering. But Jesus didn't merely suffer so you could have a friend who understands you in the pain of the now. Though you most certainly do. He suffered so you could have a savior and a substitute who will deliver you from the eternal pain of, of isolation that is the natural consequence of sin in this world and sin in our own hearts. Jesus was rebuked so that you could receive God's approval. Jesus was punished so that you could walk out free. Jesus was rejected so that you could find acceptance from God. Jesus was broken so that you could be made whole. Jesus saw the darkened face of God so that you could see his smiling face turned towards you in love. Jesus was alone in his suffering on the cross so that you would never have to be alone in yours. But what gives all these beautiful declarations any weight at all? It's this. 1 Peter chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. His suffering was not in vain. Ultimately, Jesus' substitutionary pain and sorrow didn't end in final defeat because Jesus was also rescued from the grave by God to assure those who have trusted in Christ as Savior that we also will be rescued from the curse of eternal death and suffering. And that, my friends, is why the assurance of God's answer to us in our suffering that we read about in Psalm 6 is filled with so much hope because it points us to a God who came in the flesh. He identified with us in our pain. He now comforts us in our affliction. And he saves us from the eternal suffering that lasts far beyond the brevity of this life. And that is really good news for a person in pain. So let's go to our Heavenly Father.